Hey everyone, welcome to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about political economy and anime. I am Ryan Salisbury, and today we have a returning co-host, Chris. Hey, it's a me. <laughs> so, today we are talking about the political economy and history of the tea industry in Georgia. Very, very specific topic, but uh, I <laughs> was tea shopping one day and I uh, saw a site that sold tea from Georgia. And to be clear, this is Georgia, the country. Um, <laughs> right. And they had like a like history sweet page. Georgia. <laughs> yeah. Well, they. Uh, my mom actually got me some tea like, I don't know, 10 years ago that was from Georgia, the state. And uh, I texted uh. her yesterday and I was like, just to make sure that tea that you got me was from was that from georgia the state or georgia the country um so she didn't know that there was georgia the country tea uh, uh yeah i i was surprised when you mentioned this this topic because i mean i think as it will be established like tea is normally grown uh far to the south of this area of the world yes yeah uh so western georgia is like the one place uh, in the former Soviet Union where tea can grow well. Um, mm. And it actually has a number of advantages. Uh, like, first of all, sorry, I just have to scroll down. Um, yeah, so I'll just talk about the industry section first. Mm. Uh, so there's uh, the Colchis Lowland is like the main part uh, where they grow it. And uh, it has a humid subtropical climate with long, hot summers and short, warm winters. Well, not warm, but oh, like, nice. not not freezing. Um, and then, like, the big advantage of Georgia is that it lacks it lacks the diseases and predators, uh, like pests of tea, that are present in Indochina, which makes it very easy to make organic tea. Um, so they don't have to use pesticides or anything. Mm. Um, and then... Another thing is like the the colder weather, like it's it's still colder than where it's normally grown, um, which makes it grow slower, which actually produces a higher quality product. Um, that does mean it's harder to grow high volumes, um, but they can produce that without the need for intensive agriculture. Um, mm. And it's also a good candidate for forest farming, especially in the ecology of Georgia. Um, because Georgia has a lot of wild chestnut and walnut trees and mm. tea trees like shade and um, birds like to live in the, in the nut trees and mm. they'll eat the, uh, any bugs that may attack the tea trees. Okay. Um, so, and just one more thing about the industry is that the Soviets, bred over a dozen hybrid cultivars out of the main Chinese and Assam tree cultivars. Mm -hmm. uh, their main goal was to increase frost tolerance and several of the attempts were successful. Um, so there was like, I think three or four varieties that could survive prolonged freezing weather and still produce drinkable tea leaves. Nice. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, um. So... The history is the longest part that we have here. Um, so I'll need your help, Chris, to contextualize some of this. Um, so we're going to start with Tsarist Georgia. Um, can you tell us anything about Tsarist Georgia or Tsarist Russia in general that would help us here? Uh, 
Shit. Um, not my specialty, but uh, <laughs> as we know, the uh, Tsar was a very large person of Russian descent <laughs> who uh, was capable of holding down a lot of land through sheer force. And, uh, <laughs> well, okay, so we're starting off in the, what, it looks like early 19th century, uh, at yeah. least as far as the tea is concerned, the 18 teens. And that would have been, I believe that's Azar Alexander. Um, me. See, you already know more than me. <laughs> oh, there we go. Ah, yeah. <laughs> so, so Azar Alexander succeeded to the throne after his father, Azar Paul, was murdered by like a bunch of uh, disgruntled officers. I think he was like beaten. That was actually me. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I was the disgruntled officers. <laughs> oh, nice. Well, I, I just got to hand it to you. Job well done. You really pulverized that motherfucker. Yeah, I'm a leftist um, hero murdering the czar. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Alexander, um, so emperor or czar of Russia, he was, uh, as I recall from the Age of Napoleon podcast, he was a kind of an Anglophile. So I wonder if there was a connection between any earlier efforts at growing tea in Georgia and like his love of like the British culture. Including I think there actually was. I think you're right about that. I remember yeah. something about that, like some connection yeah. to England. Because um, like, yeah, you know, the people who loved the British Empire are always trying to like, oh, well, they're the best. They're the greatest, which is obviously a lie. They're they're fucking stump brains, you know, but like, <laughs> you know, they can't even use spices. Right. As we know. And, and <laughs> you know, so like their their whole tea thing was like more of like an obsession with something they stole. Also, as we know, so it's interesting. And they how, also like, make oh, really bad tea. British yeah, tea right. is terrible. So, like, this like Anglophile czar of Russia is like, oh, I really want to make tea like the British. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I wish the Indians would tell me how to do this shit. Like, I want to see what the fucking the cold island rain boys how how they do it. You know, what's yeah. the meme format where like you start saying something and then there's somebody that's like smiling and then you finish the statement and they're like frowning. I can't remember what oh, it is. Oh god, yes, but yes. <laughs> but that's like, yeah. I want to I want to get really into tea. Yeah, like the British. Uh, okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> cool. <laughs> right. So you want to take the leaves and tear it into little pieces. Great. Yeah. <laughs> and then but put I, a I bunch of milk in it. Bastardize what's going on here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am I know this is going to probably annoy some people, but I am one of those like black coffee plain tea people like i don't put yeah, sugar I mean, milk so in my coffee and yeah, so am i and yeah it, same with my tea yeah. and uh yeah. i think yeah shredding the leaves into tiny little bits so that you can still steep it in the same amount of time for some reason is uh <laughs> not the best idea yeah yeah i i do wonder about the like the um the british or anglo or western style of like um tea you know, like shredded tea in a bag, shit, uh, or even in like the, uh, God damn it, strainer. Um, like, was that because of the way they used to pack it on the ship, and then it just became traditional for them? I don't know, but it's probably something to do well, with it. I actually, this is my area, so okay. uh, the main reason they have the little shredded leaves in a bag is because uh-huh. they can. Uh, basically process the tea at much higher volumes. 
So ordinarily, uh, if you're buying like high quality tea, the leaves are handpicked, uh, two leaves in a bud, right. and right. they are um, they're basically cooked. So mm. if it's not mm. green tea, which is just dried as is, um, mm. then black tea, oolong tea, um, and pura tea, and purple tea, um, they're all cooked in some way. So black tea is is basically uh, it can be pan fried. It can be steamed. Oh, actually, I, I'm wrong. Sorry, green tea is steamed, um, but it's not. It's not cooked. Um, and so, the other part, like after you cook it, you have to shape the leaves. And so, the easiest way to do that is to use what's called a crushed hair curl machine, and it's just a mm. machine that shreds it into little pieces, and then they just pack it into bags. Which I do think the bags. Um, I mean, not only does it make it more convenient for a very wasteful society to brew, um, <laughs> but yeah, I do think it probably is easier to transport and probably easier uh, to commodify because you can sell a discrete quantity of bags and uh, mark up the price a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. My preferred uh, form of you know tea for easy transport is the pearl which is the leaf is rolled mm. into a little ball. Mm. The most famous right. type of this is gunpowder tea. Um, oh, I love gunpowder tea. Yeah, which is a uh, Chinese green tea. It's usually pretty low quality, but still ends up v- being very delicious. You can get it like a huge bag of it for almost no money. Um, and it was like transported in ships on like barrels, in barrels. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, there's also like jasmine pearl, which is uh, green tea leaf. Um, I think it's, it's either rolled with a jasmine petal or just like scented with jasmine oil. Um, and also is usually rolled into like even, uh, more of a, like, like perfect ball shape than gunpowder tea. Gunpowder tea is usually just like kind of, um, like a, you know, like if you like took a leaf and rolled it in your fingers, it would be like that kind of shape. Mm, But mm -hmm. jasmine, jasmine pearls are like perfect, like pearl shaped little balls. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, so we're talking, we were talking about the czar, czarist, uh, Georgia. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think Georgia was a protectorate of czarist Russia. That's, that's uh, a good question. Um, oh, okay. Uh, let me look it up real, real quick. Um, late 18th century, they, Okay, it was multiple Georges at that point. Um, part of part, so part of what is now Georgia, an alliance with the Russians, and then um, oh, and then they were annexed, and then the rest of it uh, was conquered. So yes, uh, the Russia, Russia, God damn it, the Russian Empire <laughs> <laughs> took over what what is now Georgia in pieces by the time the um, the tea shit rolled around. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so, uh, before tea was cultivated in Georgia, it was becoming increasingly popular in Russia. And, um, you know, it was obviously being imported. Uh, so, higher grade teas would fetch uh, like 10 rubles a pound, which at that time was enough to buy two to three cows. So, like, Damn. pretty pricey. Like um, one human being. <laughs> yeah. 
Like, uh, how much is a cow today? Let's see. How how much does a cow cost? Question. I, I want to look this up real quick. Thousand dollars. <laughs> Two to five thousand dollars. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. On the cow, right? Yeah. So nowadays, the most expensive teas I've seen are like raw poor, which uh, some of the cakes can go for like five to six hundred dollars, um, and that is, let's see. Oh, I can just plug this into Google to convert it real quick. 357 grams to pounds, 0.78. So 600 divided by 0.78. Yeah, so $770 a pound is like the highest I've ever seen uh, for tea. And uh, even that to me is like ridiculous, but. Yeah. yeah, you can get high grade tea for like twelve dollars a pound <laughs> nowadays. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, so lots of people involved in the Russian state thought about growing tea domestically, um, because that was, of course, what they thought. You know, we have a lot of demand; it's expensive to import, so let's try and grow it here, and then it could hopefully be a little cheaper. Um, so by the late nineteenth century, there were over thirty research papers published on the subject. Uh, which I didn't, I mean, I guess that is the, around the time when science started being like a big thing, but I didn't think there'd be mm -hmm. that many papers on something so specific, uh, <laughs> at that time, you know? Yeah. Um, so the first attempt to plant tea was by Armand Emmanuel Duplessis, who is a mm -hmm. French statesman in the Bourbon Restoration, which, um... Help me out. Is that that's uh, after Napoleon was deposed for the first time? So yes, the Bourbon Restoration is what happened when uh, Napoleon was like, uh, you know, basically like French Republicanism, accelerationist imperialism, and then everyone else was like, "Oh fuck, man!" And so <laughs> they panicked, and and everybody who was previously just kind of like either like didn't give a shit or was fighting each other was like if we were buddies for just a few years to like sort this shit out, you know, and then once they finally got rid of Napoleon. Yeah. Uh, like the second time, <laughs> lol. Uh, <laughs> and, and they fought amongst themselves about how they were going to deal with France at that point. And the British, this is another point at which the British really had their hand in things. So that might also explain what's going on here. Uh, they decided, yeah, we want to put the bourbons in, uh, they're going to be nice and conservative and keep things on the rails for our particular uh, mode of play. And so that's kind of what happened. Uh, I think because the Brits just had them that much more leverage than anybody else at the time. Right. Um, so pretty much the Bourbons were, I think, I, I, I don't know much about the diplomacy between them and the Brits, but I feel like they were at least sympathetic to the Brits because of what happened. Um, if not outright, like, lovey-dovey. This would have been right after, was the War of eighteen twelve? Wasn't that? Wasn't the French involved in that? Oh, uh, I wish I knew. The Canadians were, but they were. I mean, that's you know, British. Um, oh yeah, it's just uh, the U.S. and the U.K. fighting it out. Yeah, yeah, because that was that was mostly about like naval shit and like some. Oh, I'm thinking of the French French and Indian War. That was the, that was pre-revolution. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um. So yeah, maybe maybe the French and British were kind of uh, looking at seeing themselves on the same side at this point. 
Yeah, in terms of like the regime change, yes. Yeah. Plus, like, uh, this was around... When was the Haitian Revolution? This was probably around when, when they were starting to lose their colonies, right? Yeah, well, the Haitian Revolution, uh, if I'm not mistaken, was 1791 earlier. 1791 to 1804. Yeah. yeah, because it was it was kind of on the heels of the French Revolution. It right. was, like, catalyzed by the fact that, like, all these, all these French like, mayonnaise boys were, like, what equality fraternity and liberty and then the <laughs> and then their slaves were like that sounds pretty cool and then they're like no, no, no not you you know and then the, the, the Haitians were just like oh, okay fuck this you know so <laughs> so yeah um yeah so they're probably i th- yeah i do think that i mean I, i'm probably not as informed as you are about about all this history stuff but like I think that when they started losing their colonies uh, to these revolutions, they were like, like the different European powers kind of found themselves on the same side because they were like, oh, if we work together, then we can all keep our colonies. Um, yeah. I mean, that's I know... pretty much the story since then, since then until now. It's just like, you know, white boy club work together as much as they have to in order to keep their other shit going, you know? Right. So, yeah. and, and I know that like, uh, by the mid 19th century uh, is when they started doing the free trade imperialism. So they would like right. let their colonies go, but then have like free trade agreements so that right. they were basically in the exact same position. Um, yeah. Cause they're like, yeah, you owe us a bunch of money. And also uh, we're the only <laughs> ones that have that money. And yeah, the exactly, only thing exactly. that we will uh, take for the money is all of the stuff that you were producing before we let you go. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. It's it's a shell game and yeah. it's also it's really interesting how, you know, people talk about like company store scam yeah. uh, of like, you know, when you are able to kind of sequester your laborers in some locale in such a way that you, you just like force them to buy from the company store and then you penalize them if if they try to travel to buy elsewhere. And uh that's that's actually just Another one is capitalism. That's exactly it's it's one form, one particular crystallized form, the enclosure system, uh, uh, encapsulating like a form of trade and consumption and colonialism, especially like the free trade colonialism and like all the neo-colonialism is basically the same shit, just kind of like bigger and looser looking, Mm -hmm. and with regards more to like entire regimes of 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 nations and stuff you know um and like sectors of the world so yeah it's 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 all fucked really (laughs) as we have established many many times on this podcast (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah so back to the tea stuff (laughs) um i i knew this is what the episode was going to be like so this is fine um (laughs) So yeah, Armand Emmanuel Duplessis uh, tried to plant tea trees in Yalta, which is in Crimea, uh, the famous uh, place that Russia is claiming is theirs. Um, and he planted them in the Imperial Government Botanical Garden in 1817. Uh, all of those trees died. So very unsuccessful. Uh, so I just want to say when it's like Imperial Government Botanical Garden, uh it, for some reason, it just triggered like a mental impression of like liberals making excuses 
for like, oh, it's imperial government. And we don't like that, but it's a botanical garden. So it's not so bad. And then it's like all of these trees <laughs> died. And I'm like, narrator, it wasn't so not bad. You know, like, <laughs> uh, so the next attempt wasn't until nearly 20 years later. So uh, everyone was so dejected from that, I guess, that they didn't even try um, until 1833 when General Governor Prince... <laughs> What a fucking funny title. <laughs> General Governor Prince My- Mikhail Vorontsov ordered a batch of shoots from China. Um, so the shoots survived, produced some seeds, and most were moved to another state-owned garden. I couldn't find which uh, garden that was. Um, but I-, I think he planted it in the same botanical garden as uh, C. Um so in the 1850s, uh, these trees were still growing there, and uh, the Turks pillaged the garden as they are wont to do because they're Turkish. Um, mm. And but some of the batch survived in the uh, private botanical gardens of the aristocracy. So they they uh, spread the trees to some other gardens before this happened. Um. So the first tea that was actually grown and processed in Georgia and recognized as finished tea was grown by a duke uh, with no agricultural training. Um, the site that I was getting it from said Prince Michael Aristavi. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it says Micah Aristavi, but spelled wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and neither of those names like showed up in Google at all. And when I just looked up Aristavi... Uh, I found that it was not a name, but a feudal title, which is equivalent to okay. a duke. Oh, okay. So I think they were just wrong about the person's name, uh, which kind of throws into doubt the rest of the information. But <laughs> I still got a lot of it from from that site. So hopefully uh, not too much of it is wrong. Um, yeah. So uh, Prince Aristavi Michael, whatever the fuck his name is. Um, grew tobacco, cotton, citrus, wine, fruit, and silkworms on his own land, and uh, he used tea trees as a windbreak in his on his farm. Um, so he was a pretty successful farmer, even though he had no training. Um, but when he tried to get credit from the government to expand his tea production, uh, they refused him. Uh, so that was the end of his story. In 1872. There was an attempt by a newspaper editor, the editor of, like, Caucasian Magazine or Caucasian Daily or something like that, um, to start a tea corporation. Uh, So he uh, got a famous tea horticulturist from Calcutta uh, to agree to join the venture. But the venture failed because the state would not grant him free land. (laughs) Um. Let's see. In, uh, sorry, in 1884, uh, Magister Zeidlitz presented a research article on growing tea in Georgia to the International Congress of Botanics and Horticulture in St. Petersburg. Um, and he went beyond armchair speculation, uh, which I said couldn't be me, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, tried to get some tea shoots from Hanko to plant on his land. And... Uh, I looked up Hanko, which is, uh, it is one of the three cities in China that was joined mm. together to form what is now known as Wuhan. Oh, 
So we should be calling T-Shoots the Wuhan Leaf? <laughs> yes. Let's see what's going on. What's going on. This is the Chinese Leaf. <laughs> you're, you're just shilling for, for Xi Jinping now. You're trying to spread the virus by sound. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am currently drinking the Chinese Leaf, so I am very much on their <laughs> <Yeah>. side. <laughs> Uh, so, unfortunately, uh, when Magister Zeidlitz tried to bring those T-shoots to Georgia, Georgian Customs uh, sort of disinfected the T-shoots with caustic lime, oh, a.k.a. slaked lime. <laughs> um, and Zeidlitz became a sad boy because of this and uh, gave his shipment away to a retired, here's another funny title, engineer colonel. Named uh, Solovtsov. And um, Solovtsov found that the lime didn't kill all of the shoots. So by 1893, uh, he won the gold medal at the Agricultural Expo uh, for growing trees from those shoots. Okay. <laughs> I said by 1893, he won the gold medal for the, in the, at the Agricultural Expo in 1893. <laughs> 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 Great note taking. <laughs> Sorry, what were you going to say? Oh, oh, um, I said, so I guess the story doesn't end all bad. Like, Edlitz kind of got fucked over, but like, uh, but the Solov stuff guy kind of like brought it up from the ashes. Yes. That's good. That's nice. Have you ever heard of an engineer colonel? What, what the fuck is that? I think, you know, this is one of those things where, uh, especially like these, these like feudal style empires, uh, like lots and lots of different kinds of, um, weird rank names you know i think it's partly because like they kind of they have to they have to like keep up this bureaucratic army apparatus then at the same time like they can't just have everybody like running around with a gun they have to have like functional administrative and scientific duties you know and right. so then they're like well you're a colonel but you're like a engineer colonel you know you're not like a colonel of artillery <laughs> right like you know i wouldn't let you do that and, like and then this what was this other guy called the General Governor Prince, like so, I think Prince yeah. is his nobility <laughs> title. Right? Prince is like his nobility title. Like, okay, we know he's he's blue blood, but then General Governor is like his administrative rank or something. Yeah, we know oh, he's a top, the top brass guy. You know, that's in, like an in, African warlord ass title. <laughs> right, right, exactly. You're like like Duke Dictator Prince. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. Maybe the engineer colonel thing is like. They had like an Army Corps of Engineers type deal. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking probably like like that. he was the guy that built trebuchets or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'll, I'll admit, like this is this is a little bit less weird to me. Uh, not not like it's not that it's not weird. Like empires can get fucked, but like um, in the in the books that I'm writing, um, there's actually one of the major you know empires. Has this kind of ranking and naming system because they're like that, and it's because they're just like a bunch of different um, bands and a bunch of different like kind of oligarchical rulers, and they all have different ways of doing things, and then they like are like have all these arbitrary rankings because it's like again, oh this is noble family, and those guys are commoners, but those guys rose up through the ranks, and these guys didn't have to, but then this guy does more than that, and this guy does this particular kind of thing. It's pretty much they're just mishmashing concepts as the rank, you know. I see. Like you're like you're like engineer podcaster Ryan Salisbury. You know? and I'm like, <laughs> like engineer. That is my actual title. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> um, actually, I'm producer-engineer podcaster, Ryan. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I wish we know you're, you're a commoner because you don't have Prince in your title. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm not even a Duke. Damn. Um, sp- uh, speaking of which, that uh, Aristavi title uh it means something like like the people's champ like paul wall i think paul wall would he would his title would be aristavi (laughs) big man (laughs) 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 yeah uh okay so t was finally commercialized uh from georgia uh starting in 1893 by and this is my favorite uh, name of any tea company I've actually ever heard. The Pop-Off Tea Firm in Batumi. Yeah. <laughs> it makes you pop off. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, they popped off and bought 300 hectares of land around Batumi, uh, which is a city in Georgia. Um, and so Pop-Off, the person, was from a family of merchants uh, with experience in the tea trade who owned multiple tea factories in Hanko, which again is the Wuhan place. Um, and uh, j- like just for a s- small explanation of what I mean, when three cities were joined together, there's like a, a f- like a river fork. So it's like literally three uh, okay. little parts of a city around, oh, like on different sides of the river. At um, some point they were like, ah, let's quit this bullshit. This is one city. We all know it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, Pop-Off went to plantations in uh, China, Japan, and India from 1899. Oh, that can't be right. Uh, 1889, I think, to 1893 <laughs> to study the tea industry up close. Um, and in all, he invested over a million rubles into growing tea, which is enough to buy 200,000 cows. So that's a lot. Um, let's see what... What did we we said that was two thousand dollars for a cow, so times yeah, two hundred thousand. Know, yeah. Holy shit, four hundred million. So this guy was like a billionaire. Wow. I guess that was the Gilded Age. So true. You know, yeah. Like, I guess I guess there there would be people running around buying that many cows, but yeah. He, um, He's uh rack stacking, yeah. popping off and rack stacking. Um, <laughs> So 20 years later, there were uh, multiple tea plantations in Georgia with 900 hectares of tea trees producing 150 tons of tea. But this was only 1% of the tea consumed in Tsarist Russia at the time. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Um, Bottom 1%. 1%. Yeah. Yeah. so let's see. This is kind of out of order, actually. Uh, Popoff brought a, a former assistant director to a tea factory in the the site said Ninjo, N I N J O. I couldn't find anything about this place. Uh, my first guess was that it's a male ninja, um, and my second <laughs> guess is that it's supposed to be Jinjo, which is a city in China. Um. So he. Uh. Yeah. Assistant director to a uh, tea factory in what I'm guessing is Jinjo, uh, whose name was uh, Liu Jonjo. Sorry, Liu Jonjo. Uh, I'm sure I got the tones wrong on that. Um, 
and he helped spearhead the tea industry in Zaras, Georgia. So he became famous in Georgia under the Laowai version of his name, which was Lao John Zhao. Like John, like the the Christian name. <laughs> uh, um, uh-huh. So yeah, Popoff uh, hired him to uh, help him uh, grow tea. And uh, so I have a little... Uh, passage that he supposedly wrote even though there's no attribution uh, or source uh, I mean uh, sorry citation uh, on this but um, he apparently supposedly said I was attracted to a completely new country for me and the knowledge that that I'd be the first one to introduce tea culture having finally decided to go I signed a contract with CS Popoff for three years my allowance amounted to 500 rubles a month, which, holy shit, uh, with <laughs> an apartment, food costs, servants, a horse and carriage, and so on. Even travel there and back in the first class was included. Um, I arrived to Caucasus in November 1893. Um, and he traveled to Georgia with 10 Chinese assistants, 10,000 tea cuttings, and hundreds of pounds of seeds. So he led the creation of a farm and tea factory in Chakva, uh, which I think is like basically a, a suburb of Batumi, if I remember correctly. Okay. Um, and he modeled it after a Chinese village tea factory. So there were cast iron ovens, bamboo trays and sieves and a winnowing machine that uh, all of that stuff was imported from China. Um, so when they started off in 1895, they produced only 20 pounds of tea but within two years, their production grew to 1,200 pounds. Um, and at this point, uh, the company mechanized uh, based on the... They modeled the mechanized uh, production after Ceylon, uh, which is now known as Sri Lanka, uh, which was a... It's a big tea-producing area. And the next year, production grew to 13,000 pounds. Um, and in 1900... Uh, Lou won a gold medal in a world expo in Paris for his tea. Uh, another really interesting thing is uh, you can actually see a color photo of Lou uh, from this time. I don't know if it'll come up if you search it. You might have to search his Lao I name. Uh, Lao John Zhao. Um, but yeah, on, on a lot of the Georgian tea sites they have pictures of the guy from this time and let me see if i can yeah, i saw one on uh on links that you included or wow. sent me um legend joe oh, yeah. sometime between 1905 and 1915 so the way hmm. it's currently romanized is l-a-o-j-i-n uh j-a-o so yeah if you search that you can see a picture of him he looks like a nice fellow he's got a medal <laughs> wearing his medal for his photo and uh, I guess the the cameras at the time were four color cameras, um, so like you can actually see at the edges of some of the photos that it's like magenta, yellow, cyan, and I'm guessing like black, um, yes. and so that's how they get the colors. Uh, so they also have some pictures of the um, the mostly women um, farmhands that are picking the tea. Um, there's a picture of their, one of their warehouses where they have, uh, boxes and bales of tea. And 
like the main farmhouse and a couple other things. Uh, some nice photos. And uh, those were by the photographer of the czar, Sergei Mikhailovich Prokudin Gorsky, who is, I guess, a famous guy. Um, so Lou left the Popoff plantation in 1901 to become director of the Chakva Tea Factory, where he stayed for the following 25 years. In 1923, he was awarded the Order of the Red Banner of Labor by the Soviets. And uh, three years later, he returned to China. This makes me think of, uh, that's kind of like another example of, I mean, this is like a really specific thing and probably wasn't like bad, but, uh, what, uh, young neocon, uh, talked about on our, uh, central planning episode where, or maybe it wasn't, maybe it was, uh, I don't know who talked about it. I think, I think it was young neocon, uh, about how, like after the Russian revolution, when the, uh, Bolsheviks started, you know, forming a new state, uh, mm-hmm. instead of being anarchists, they sort of kept all of the old bureaucrats, um, because uh, they couldn't find people with their specific expertise right. and they needed them to, you know, do statecraft. Do shit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Lou is just another example of that. Although, uh, he's probably okay. <laughs> he's just a guy uh, that grows tea. It's fine. Exactly. He's, he strikes me as, um, Lou is one of those people who I think defies the, or, or not defies, but like helps us understand the division between uh, useful, like useful labor and and technical authority, and like totally useless, unnecessary hierarchical bullshit. Yeah, like, like, he was a guy who just was like, "I'm here to do a good job." You know? Yeah, <laughs> anybody like that with that kind of brain and mentality would probably just want to do that, you know. Yeah. So of course, like, yeah, dude, he's take like one a, of my coworkers. Yeah, like, why not, right? And then, <laughs> whereas like, it's like then you get these like, oh, I'm, I'm the, you know, I'm the fucking engineer colonel, and you're like, fuck off, dude, fuck, <laughs> fuck off, you know, like, <laughs> engineer or you're nothing, okay? So shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay, so the last thing about Tsarist Georgia is uh, there were famines around the turn of the century, and so a lot of uh, tea bushes were ripped out to plant staple crops like corn. Waste. Why, Although, why eat when you have tea? Or eat tea when you're done drinking it? You I, I, I tell myself that every day. Why eat when I can have tea? Um, <laughs> and uh, by the way, I've lost like 20 pounds since... <laughs> quarantine okay. started so probably not the healthiest thing um yeah. uh god what was i gonna say oh oh yeah uh as with a lot of um non-american sources i don't know if when they say corn they mean like sweet corn or just like grain yeah um, I, I, I'm, yeah I mean, like especially an older source yeah um, or like a non-american source <laughs> yeah, I think it seems pretty unlikely that they would import corn from the U.S. and grow it in Georgia. That seems weird. That's the uh, wrong Georgia for growing corn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so there was a short period from 1917 to 1918 where Georgia was an independent state ruled by the Menshevik Social Democratic Party of Georgia. Mm. And uh, you said you you did not know a lot about the Mensheviks? I mean, all I know is that they were a splinter of the um, Russian uh, fucking goddamn it. I forget the long name, but basically the, the Russian Social Democrats. Um, okay. That you know, it split into the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks based on like their kind of approach to how to do this, the rest of this revolution. You know, uh-huh. Once things started to heat up and pop off, and they were like, "Well," uh, and then like Lenin and Trotsky, and then were like, "Yeah, well, let's just be Bolsheviks and then fuck you." You know, the Mensheviks had to kind of make a decision from there. Uh, <laughs> so I guess I don't. I'm not very familiar with the timeline of the Russian Revolution. Like when? When was the Russian Revolution? Uh, well, I mean, 1917. Okay. Um, in terms of its like incipients, but it took a while to really, really get to, uh, to really get to where the Soviet, like the USSR, was really like handling shit. Uh-huh. Um. So. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The article is Soviet Union really, and of course, you know, those of us. In the, in the audience who really know this history will be like, dude, come on, how do you not know this? But like, <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry, okay? I'm not that much of a red, you know? Uh, but like, <laughs> I, I just, I haven't read all the books on all the shit, you know? So apparently the yeah, Soviet for me, Union... like, I'm just not, I'm not as interested in the Russian Revolution because the USSR was just a state and I'm an anarchist. Sorry. <laughs> I, I'm a real communist. Right. I'm not a fake communist who <laughs> thinks that Stalin was good. <laughs> Right, right, right. So, so okay. So the revolution started in 1917, um, and you know, um, at least October Revolution that Lenin, etc. Uh, the USSR itself was was established in 1922. So it took okay. years, roughly, for them to really round out what was going on, um, and that's why you know you had these like splinters and you had these pockets of people doing different shit. Then of course, wow, once... so Lou is probably like one of the first people to get that award. Then, probably, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, we had something to do with uh, who was in charge. <laughs> would that would that have been Lenin at that time? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Lenin. Uh, I think he died in like seven or something. Um, let's see. 24 okay yeah so he because he has he had like health issues later on and so it was like they established the ussr and then 24 he finally kind of just like collapsed and, and you know passed from this world but um yeah i mean i had a lot of complicated shit going on at the time it's it's not surprising to me why i'm confused about exactly when things happened um <laughs> lot of very fast moves so so the wikipedia page on the order of the red banner of labor uh has a list of recipients and lou john Zhao is not on there Hmm. odd just for russia though that page (laughs) right um sorry what'd you say i said I said, is it like specifically for Russian recipients, maybe, or like, 
Or is it I don't like think so. For... Oh, it does say partial list. So, uh, okay, and, and yeah, they also yeah. have it organized by like six time recipients, five time recipients. So, uh, okay, they probably okay. just don't have all the one time recipients on there. Right. Right. Um. Okay. So, yeah, there wasn't really any info about the Democratic Republic of Georgia, which was the Menshevik uh, ruled state. Um. So the next period, obviously, is the Soviet period, uh, which is we had to further divide that into pre-war, World War II, and post-war. So for the pre-war section, um, the USSR brought the Bolsheviks to power in 1921. In 1924, the Mensheviks led the August Uprising against the Bolsheviks. Uh, The uprising failed, and the Bolsheviks cemented their power. And... uh, during this, the Bolsheviks were led by Sergo, oh God, Orjan Kidza, Orjan Kidza, and our best good friend, Joseph Stalin. Yeah, so, that guy. Yeah, Stalin <laughs> crushed a, <Celebrity. laughs> a popular <laughs> uprising <laughs> against uh, uh, the state. Great. Cool. Huh. Um, and Stalin is sure Georgian, by the way. Huh? But I'm sure they were reactionaries or something, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, they're like social democrats, idea. which means they're liberals. So, yes, yes. Unlike, like... unlike the uh, the Bolsheviks, who were, you know, not liberals, even though they liked, you know, states and police and money and business and uh, you know intelligence agencies and all that stuff. But uh, they were, but, you know, some, yeah, some they were states definitely their way slower than others, <laughs> right? <laughs> um. So, at first, Georgia was part of the Transcaucasian Socialist Federative Soviet Republic, or TSFSR, Uh, but in 1936, uh, Stalin, who was now in power, uh, divided the TSFSR into the ethno-linguistic republics of Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, which ordinarily would seem like racist colonial bullshit, but uh, Stalin is a trans person of color and the only real communist in history, so actually it's good. Well, there you go. Yeah, no complaints here. I can't um, talk. Obviously. I don't have that kind of, uh, you know, yeah. graphic working. Right? Yeah, you are a white man, so you're not allowed to criticize Stalin. Sorry. I'm going to sit here. I'm going to be quiet. <laughs> Let this happen. <laughs> um, so I, I just wanted to have a small aside here to, like, read a passage straight from one of the articles that I got this information from because uh, it was pretty funny to me. Uh, mm-hmm. So, this person wrote, in this second, quote, in quotes, second world, uh, mm-hmm. there was paltry private property and few market forces were at play. Instead of being bought and sold on the free market, goods and services were, quote, producer goods. The Soviets, quote, rationalized the means of production and consumption, which meant some guy in an office building in Moscow decided every five years how many units of a certain good would be produced, how much it would be sold for, and where it would be sold. It was a, quote, command economy that worked sometimes, but not often. Yes. (laughs) Totally unlike a guy in an office building in, like, some fucking corporate park in Idaho telling people that, like, (laughs) oh, we need to overproduce these widgets uh, yeah, and also like they're they're going to be overproduced in some place in fucking Sri Lanka by a bunch of orphans waiting knee deep in mercury and uh, <laughs> you know and like fucking blind as bats from all the abuse and shit. 
And, uh, and then the widgets, oh yeah, we're only going to sell like a quarter of them like for like extreme markup, and then the rest of them we're just going to toss on a landfill. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's, too bad they, it's too bad they couldn't do like real rationalization, like, you know, having a magical machine that uh, takes everyone's preferences and puts them into a black box and then turns out optimal allocation uh, well, yeah. using prices, which are I definitely supply and demand based and uh, yeah. not just based on, uh, you know, cost plus markup. Yeah. yeah. Or, or the extreme rationalism of... Um... <laughs> somebody on tiktok put it um the stock market is just a graph of rich people's feelings <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good <laughs> yeah, like yeah that's pretty much what it is <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and and this guy like uh he he seems like one of those types you know the type of person that's like Oh, you're you're a communist, but you have no idea what life was really like under communism, and right. uh, I. But I do because I moved to St. Petersburg in 1991. Yeah, yeah, right. He literally when, said when, that. Like, He's like, when I moved to St. Petersburg in 1991. <laughs> God damn it! Are you? Oh my God. <laughs> This is this is one of those moments where we're like, ah, the USSR, no good, no good. We're anarchists, and then as soon as a capitalist speaks up, we're like kneecapping the guy. Like, shut yes. the fuck up, man! Like, <laughs> I forget what it was about specifically, but it was like, I, I think it might have been about Bernie or something like that. And it was uh, like when, uh, you know, when leftists criticize Bernie, and it's like, yes. yeah, fucking get him, go. Oh, and then God like when damn. Democrats criticize Bernie, it's like circle the wagons, go fuck yourself, like. Exactly. I'm gonna murder your ass. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so under the uh, USSR, the tea industry was revived since uh, Russia had a heavy tea drinking culture, and both Lenin and Stalin liked tea. Huh. Um, but unfortunately, the Soviet planners uh, were all about autarky, uh, which I made a note for myself that I shouldn't use that word because uh, it, it sucks. It sounds like it's based off of arcane, like, demo like, uh, sorry. What's a word based off of arcane, uh, ar archy, anarchy, you know, um, it has nothing to do with, with that. Uh, it means self-sufficiency. So, uh, the Soviet planners were focused on self-sufficiency. So they wanted to, uh, fulfill demand for, their products, uh, like, sorry, they wanted to fulfill all demand for products uh, domestically, and so they focused on producing for all their needs um, domestically so that they wouldn't have to import anything. Uh, so because of that, um, rather than trying to produce high-quality tea, they just went for as much volume as possible. So they developed harvesting machines uh, that produced a very low quality tea because they just sort of they were like you know beard trimmers they just gave the trees a haircut and uh so there would be like you know it'd be like uh dirt weed of tea like full of stems and seeds and all that stuff um so like georgian tea under the ussr was like famously low quality it was like brick tea um oh yeah so yeah yep. just generally not good 
but it was one of the one of the few luxuries that like everyone was able to get um and uh, another thing in that article from the guy who is a you know an expert on what life is like under communism um said that a lot of people had the tea tins that they packaged the tea in they uh, used them for storing other things once they drank all the tea and um he said he moved into someone's apartment after the previous occupant passed away and there was like a lifetime collection of empty tea tins that he was able to use awesome yeah yeah i like tea tins like a bunch of like vintage tea tins yeah just use or or whatever that'd be a cool souvenir but i bet you could find some on ebay yeah be a nice little souvenir to have um so around this time world war ii broke out so not much information uh is available on the tea industry during world war ii other than i mean yeah it really happened in the ussr at the time so i'm sure we could just rush right past this part (laughs) (laughs) um everything was great nobody was suffering (laughs) right right yeah and uh but yeah like everyone agrees that the most likely thing is that uh tea production declined significantly so that they could produce food uh which i don't know why they would have to do that since they were just uh sending millions of people to their death you know why even feed them I mean, you know, you get one tea brick and a bullet in your rifle, and that bullet is for somebody else. So just get used to it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just breezing past World War II where, you know, nothing really happened. Um, Pretty boring time, really. Right, yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't really know anything about it, so uh, I don't have anything to say. But uh, so after the war, tea production resumed. Uh, and within 10 years, 75,000 hectares were growing tea in the USSR, with almost 90% mm. of that being in western Georgia. Uh, the other 12% were in Azerbaijan, uh, which, as we noted earlier, was part of Transcaucasia, but made into a republic under the Soviets. And mm. Krasnodar Krai, which is a cool name of a place in Russia. Um, in the late 1950s, acreage declined due to a variety of factors, uh, which are pressure from other crops, a shift in emphasis of yield on the same amount of land rather than acreage, high production from China and other Asian countries. And China was, I think if I'm correct, uh, was now ruled by a communist party so they could, you know, trade with them without feeling bad. And, um, the USSR put less emphasis on self-sufficiency at this point. Um, production peaked in 1985, yielding 152,000 tons from 70,000 hectares, which is uh, two tons per hectare, which is quite a lot. Uh, and there were 180,000 workers involved in the value chain of tea. Um, but since then, it has declined continuously. Uh, falling to 1,800 tons on 1,700 hectares with around mm-hmm. 10,000 hectares just fallow. Um, okay. And so the yield is about half now. Um, so after the Soviet Union dissolved, uh, when Georgia became independent, it was not in the best position since it primarily acted as like a, a surf state 
for Russia. And uh, due to the emphasis on volume production for domestic consumption, Georgian tea didn't really have a global reputation. And um, right after a Georgian corporation took control of the tea plantations, but instead of using them, it instead sold the machinery to Turkey and let the land become wild. Uh, but in the last 10 years, there has been somewhat of a resurgence of Georgian agricultural products, particularly wine, uh, which I asked a friend of the show, uh, Nathan, if he'd ever had Georgian wine. And he's like, no, I live in France. <laughs> uh, we only drink French wine. <laughs> um, but <laughs> apparently, according to this... Uh, page I was reading, Georgian wines and cuisine are pretty trendy in Europe right now, and uh, their tea has begun to follow suit. So you can get high-quality Georgian tea now online. I'm not going to name any specific places, because I don't want this to be a commercial, but uh, you can find it pretty easily, I'm sure. Um, okay, so that's it for the history. Uh, I have a little bit on how the administration of this stuff worked, uh, which, as I told Chris yesterday, I I searched a lot of different terms to try and find, like, <laughs> okay, how do they manage the tea industry? And I I, I searched so many terms. I was searching, like, I, I tried it a couple times, like, a few different days last week and mm-hmm. um, spent, like, another 30 minutes trying to figure it out and finally came upon administration and i was like oh yeah duh um <laughs> so i couldn't find any information from like the 20s to the 70s um in like in the soviet union because mm. obviously for czarist russia it was just like you know business and feudalism um together so that's how that worked we already <laughs> talked about the pop-off tea company so there's obviously like businesses mm. There were joint stock corporations. Uh, you know, the the newspaper editor guy tried to form one. Um, so, in starting in the seventies in the USSR. Um, oh, I do have like a little bit prior to the seventies in the USSR. Different sectors of the agricultural industry were managed by diff- like different competing government ministries. Um, so they had you know like ministries for specific. Um, types of agriculture um, and such. Uh, but in the early 70s, uh, the USSR was experimenting with uh, what they called rayon-level integration. Um, okay. The acronym is RAPO. Um, and, and a rayon is a subnational administrative division, which is usually just translated as district. Um, okay. So... One of the problems the Soviets were trying to solve at this time was the growing complexity of social industrial relationships sort of butting up against the bureaucracy managing their industry. So there are like more complex um, trade relationships, um, you know, in like different parts of the value chain of agriculture. Um, and with the amount of bureaucracy needed to like keep it all under state control. Um, Mm -hmm. it was like costing more and more money. So they were trying to, uh, reduce the level of spending that they had to do. Um, 
So in order to do that, they basically did the government equivalent of mergers and acquisitions. Um, ah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, All by so, consensus, of course. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It was the workers' are. idea, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll just quote from this uh, paper. Uh, in the last one and a half decades, one of the predominant problems of Soviet agricultural organization has been how the increasing integration of services, industrial processing, and trade could be fostered without the growing overlap of bureaucracy, making these measures financially unfeasible. Uh, so the Soviets had varying degrees of success in their administration of Georgia and other parts of Transcaucasia. Many were reluctant to follow the changing orders of the Soviets. I wasn't able to figure out like who was reluctant like was it the collective farms or the interfarm enterprises uh i'm not sure but um one anecdotal example that i read on another article was um the soviets ordered georgians to clear-cut forests and plant sarsaparilla and the Georgians nodded and instead sent their kids to forage Ecala from the woods, which is like spinach. Okay. <laughs> so they're like, oh, yeah, sure, sure. And then just. Oh, yeah, like, sound good. <laughs> this is what you want, right? Yes. <laughs> I love Stalin. <laughs> My cousin, you know this. <laughs> um, uh, so the article on the administration stuff said that. Uh, administrative integration is important for tea processing among other mm. agricultural industries due to the need for like quick processing of the products. So you really need to have a handle on the operation of the industry so that you could make sure that, you know, your stuff didn't rot. Right. Uh, so uh, there were inter-farm enterprises, uh, which were administrative bodies that organized activities across multiple collective farms. And a lot of that was, you know, involved in processing type stuff. So in Georgia in 1984, there they took a tally of the interfarm inter enterprises, uh, and the majority of them were for livestock and construction. Oh, and, and sorry, there were 394 of them. I don't know if I said that already. Um, so I'll quote the article at length about the vertical integration of Soviet agrarian management. Uh, so they said, in all three Transcaucasian republics, there was an early effort at integration in the winemaking industry. In Georgia, large collective and state farms have joined to form regional wineries in traditional wine-growing areas like, oh, Jesus, uh, Kakhetia, um, and there is even an even larger organizational en uh, entity known as Somtrest. It includes not only the Georgian regional wineries with associated state farms and large wine and brandy producers in Tbilisi, but also bottling plants in other Soviet regions. Um, the Armenian wine is industry is similarly organized into a corporation known as Ararat, or Ararat, I don't know, like Yasser? Um, uh, Arafat? Oh, yeah, that is, Ararat. yeah, it is Ararat, Ararat. Like, like the mountain? <laughs> That's, um, um, yeah. yeah, and uh, Ararat had its main plants in 
Yerevan. Uh, in yeah. Azerbaijan, where wine growing is of more recent origin, the agribusiness system known as Azerb Azerb Vino, like Azerbaijan Vino. Um, nice. Yeah, good portmanteau there. Azerb Vino. <laughs> <laughs> um you have to like stop saying the word before you say it. <laughs> yeah they need an apostrophe in there <laughs> right right um so azervino combines a variety of organizational elements including small interfarm enterprises and specialized enterprises at the rayon level uh which again is the district level um the example of integration in the wine industries in georgia and in armenia on the one hand, and in Azerbaijan on the other, suggests that the diffusion of an innovative branch of agriculture promptly makes use of new types of organization, but that the older forms of interfarm cooperation persist even when new organizations are established or new designations are used from are used from the joint stock companies of the early Soviet period to trusts and government corporations, and finally to the agribusiness systems at the republic level. Uh, so apparently prior to the Rappo system, there were literally joint stock corporations uh, that were managing industry in the Soviet Union, which doesn't sound very communist to me personally. <laughs> I don't know about you. Well, you probably just misunderstood what was really going on at the time. <laughs> Socialism I mean, in not... one business. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Investing my um, surplus labor value in your labor value. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> I do wonder um, how they rationalize this. And by they, I mean tankies. Yeah, I'm curious. I'm curious. Because uh, I'm like, I, I really want to understand, like, what extent was this like seen as like, I'll throw them a bone here. Right. Like I, I really want to understand what, how was this seen as like, was this a transitional state thing? Was this like, Oh, well, you know, again, cause Marxism, right. This is like, Oh, well, this is getting closer. You know, we're, we're going to kind of do a communist business mm -hmm. within this communist state because the whole world isn't communist yet. So we kind of got to do something. What was the rationale, you know? Um, uh, yeah, I wonder if they had like the equivalent of factory committees, but for farms prior to right. that. Right, right. You know, and 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 um, like what? How does this stack up against like uh, trying to do like a socialist co-op in a capitalist economy like ours, which is kind of what I'm trying to set up with some people. You know. Um, oh, nice. Right, like I mean, like eventually, right? Uh, right. And I've been been kind of brainstorming and, and, and outlining for a couple of years now, like how would this work within the market um, without getting totally fucking eviscerated uh, or, or just like becoming irrelevant beyond like the neighborhood footprint, you know? Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of like wondering, like, how does that stack up against this? You know, like wh what's, how much does context matter when we analyze the pros and cons of a supposedly communist enterprise, you know? And I think that's one of those things that just like history will bear out in this case, because the USSR was like, like sort of knifed to death at the end. Like we won't really know. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
and I think it does like speak to the thing that you and I started harping on a lot during the third season Mm. of our Mm. show, which Mm. is that business is basically half the state and corporations are organizations that are like their main purpose is statecraft. And even if you have a state that is supposedly anti-capitalist, they have the exact same sort forms of organization. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. (laughs) And, and I think it is like one of those things where like corporations weren't some thing that like some geniuses thought of. It's just like, Oh, like the logical conclusion of the question, how do we rationalize statecraft? We have, we have money and we need stuff to get done. So let's give the money to people who are interested in getting stuff done and they will be rewarded for, you know, successful efforts. Um, And in order to, you know, uh, make it happen faster we can issue stocks and sell them to people who have money so that we can have money uh in order to (laughs) pay workers um so i have just a little bit more left of the this extended passage uh so like the georgian wine industry the tea industry in georgia has also undergone some organizational changes but without the total integration proposed by Santaladze, um, some other author, uh, only one organizational entity at the rayon level, as produ- proposed by Kol- Kokolov and Demidov, uh, turned out to be successful largely because it corresponded to the new rayon level agribusiness entities that were in an experimental stage at the time. And and by the way, like. Uh, this article, like the entire time, uh, they were using the term agribusiness to refer to how the agricultural industry was managed. Okay. Um, so it's not, agribusiness isn't something unique to like the U S or British model. That's, it's also how the, uh, Soviet union was managed. Although I, I, to get like to um what's it called to try and be fair to them i guess mm-hmm. um it could just be like the way that they translated some russian term that was yeah. similar but yeah. i don't know i wonder about that too translation is can be generally is just as ideologically um formed right true uh, yeah as, as composition itself you know so you're like well you know there the term means a an economic organization that produces outputs and that's what we call a business and you're like well maybe it is and maybe it isn't you know what is a business and so forth i kind of wonder about that as well or maybe in in both contexts like same word is used for two different kinds of productive of unit you know like oh it could be a business it could be a co-op of some kind it could be whatever i don't know the mm-hmm. details so that's a good question yeah um let's see i'm trying to figure out this article is by jorg stadelbauer 
uh, from the University of Freiburg, and it was in 1986. So I'm trying to figure out if it was in mm. East or West Germany. I... Let's see. Baden-Württemberg. God, I'm so bad at pronouncing Germanic <laughs> and Russian words. Um, okay, I think it's West Germany. Southwest Germany, yeah. 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 So it could be ideological. Um, let's see, let's see. Government. Yes. Yeah, that was, that was West Germany. So, hmm, a little ideology there. <laughs> uh, so if you're interested in this article in particular, um, I definitely didn't cover everything in there, uh, but I did cover like quite a bit of it. Um, it's called Agricultural Cooperation and Agribusiness in Soviet Transcaucasia. Um, pretty good article. Um, let's see. Oh, yeah, I have just a little bit more. Uh, so Georgians uh, resisted vertical integration um, during this time in the Rapa system on the basis that government enterprises would dominate the industry. Um, so under Rapo integration, uh, member institutions, which, again, I'm not sure if this is collective farms or inter-farm enterprises or both or neither, um, but member institutions would receive 10% of planned profit and 70% of surplus profit. So, like, you know, if um, if they made, like, 10,000 rubles um, and they planned for, you know, 8,000, they would receive 10% of the 8,000 and then 70% of the 2,000 uh, surplus. Um, but according to the article, a lot of times... Uh, the Soviet government like didn't really remit them properly, and uh, like sometimes okay. it would be in kind, <laughs> like they would just send them fertilizer and shit like that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, so on the other end of that relationship, um, the collective farms would also be like, yeah, go fuck yourself, kind of thing, like not send them <laughs> everything. Um, right. and the last thing I have is in. 1983, Georgia had multiple farm-related republic-level ministries that were dissolved in favor of a state committee of agricultural production, uh, which managed farms, land reclamation, water supply, and farm equipment. So that was like a merger, government merger. So that's all I really have. Um. Wow, we yeah, have like almost the ideal podcast length. <laughs> We're at an hour <laughs> 19. <laughs> we fucking did it. <laughs> yeah. We did it, lads. <laughs> um, do you have anything to add? Uh, not really. Um, no, this was a really interesting just little kind of economic history dive um, to something that I never expected to to find interesting uh, and didn't even know that Georgia grew tea. So this was, this was really interesting and cool. And I also like the origin story, you know? Um, yeah. And again, you can, you can uh, get it now. You can buy yeah. tea from Georgia. So tea from Georgia, I've it's out there folks. I think I did hear <laughs> from one person that they have tried it and it's good. So huh? if you're interested. Good. Try it. It's good. <laughs> and also look at the, look <laughs> yes. at the photos of stuff. I'll, uh, I'll link one of the pages 
that has like all these photos in there. Um, ooh, I think this is like a CIA type thing. It's Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Oh, what the fuck is that? Interesting. Yeah, that sounds very CIA. Either or, CIA or, or libertarian. Or yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Tyler Durden here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, they also have pictures of the uh, Soviet harvesting machines. Oh, cool. Which is, yeah, uh, they're pretty cool. Soviet industrial porn. Yeah. Yeah, they have like these, like just massive, like hedgerows basically. And uh, the machines just like drive over them. And like I said, give them a, give them a little haircut. That's a little Um, bit cheer off the top and they have they have a uh, this like brick tea which oof man it looks bad oh here i'll link it in the discord so <laughs> see what i'm looking at um like the design that they press into it looks cool but uh, because it's like really like shitty looking tea like the design mm-hmm. doesn't look very nice <laughs> right there's like right. stems sticking out of it it's got like flyaways you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> I feel I feel like this this shot of the um like the tea hair cutters uh-huh. would be like if 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 you were like to like kind of anxy it up it'd be a great t shirt design um just yeah. like neighbor science and it's just like a bunch of like tea shearing machines just <laughs> <laughs> hanging out being neighbors <laughs> um so I was thinking while I was researching this uh. It would also be interesting to do an episode on the Chinese tea industry, since that is the main uh-huh. tea producer in the world. Um, yeah. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, so if you'd be interested in that. Uh, or just like Chinese agriculture, I don't know, tea and other themed crops of sorts. I don't know. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Well, I, I, have a, I bought a uh, book from a Chinese tea shop in New York City um on the history of chinese tea and it goes back to like the year like 700 or something like that so it's like oh wow there's a lot there and uh yeah it's pretty pretty interesting i should also for that uh get i could could probably get woke hoover uh from twitter on here he's in he's the one who invited me to the the tea chat that i'm in Uh, oh yeah so that that could be cool um cool uh do you have anything you want to plug since you're on here and you haven't been on in a while uh great question i i uh can't really think of anything off the top of my head um just uh i just want to express like solidarity with everybody else who like me is like helplessly depressed and just managing their way through this like being bored inside thing because as a as an extrovert who likes to stay really active and like places around the city and stuff like as part of my just normal lifestyle like it's not flashy but it'll do you know um like even that has been taken away from me so that sucks also solidarity to everyone who also like me has simply not received their unemployment benefits yet and is running out of fucking money. Ooh. <laughs> um, yeah, I, they said that they should have word to me by um, coming like Wednesday because they have like an internal deadline for processing reopened claim and everything. And there was this, this like, you know, just this dumb bureaucratic shit going on. And like, again, like this is, 
yet another criticism that we can have of like the liberal state apparatus and like liberal rationalization is they're like, oh, but like we do have ways to help you. And you're like, yeah, it takes like three months to fucking help you if you even approve. And it's some dumb guy sitting there with like a just like a fucking form and like a clicker who's like, I don't know. I mean, I'll have to defer this to so and so. That kind of bullshit. We all know it. We've know, we've known it for like two hundred years that this is how it goes. <laughs> like, like just green light the money. Just yeah. Fucking write the fucking check. It's that fucking simple. You know. Like, you guys astounding. don't even have to earn the money. You can just create it out of thin air. Come on, let's go. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Pay up. <laughs> fucking not not actionable satire parody bleep me out. But it's astounding that Americans haven't blown away their own government by now. <laughs> yeah. Like, fuck. <laughs> we are the best little slaves in the world. Oh my god! Oh my god! Yeah. So, so I'm sitting here and I'm waiting on an amount that I will not name, but I will say, as I said on Twitter, it is now so delayed that my credit union will have to report to the IRS the amount that will be paid to me. That's crazy. That's how much they fucking owe me. District Jesus, of man. Columbia is is like a failed state within a failed state at this point. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know the about the amount based on that. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, that's man. Oh, that really sucks, dude. It um, sucks. Well, let me know if you need me to front you some money. I appreciate that. I would be I, happy um, to. I will let you know. I will let you know as soon as I find out. <laughs> <laughs> All uh, right. Uh Chris, thanks a lot for joining me and um you know thanks for having me back. Lending me your uh expertise in in history valuable black humor (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think this is a great episode um so if we do the uh the chinese tea industry i'd I'd really look forward to that absolutely just let me know cool all right uh that's it um for our listeners uh let's see uh out the patreon obviously yeah yeah i don't i haven't really been plugging the patreon but i guess you know check out our patreon if you want uh some very sparse bonus content uh i <laughs> you know cut out i sometimes cut out the like uh side conversations that we have if i'm trying to control the length and throw them up on there so there's some interesting stuff on there but uh we i don't have time to do bonus episodes unfortunately so um yeah. there's nothing like that but yeah if you want to throw us some bucks feel free patreon.com slash neighbor science um but you know what would really help is if you give us a rating on itunes uh yeah and um i think that's it uh we will be doing uh, an isekai anime mini series in july called isekai july um so i've watched a lot of isekai anime uh in preparation for that and i am currently looking for uh guests for that so if anyone is interested dm the neighbor science uh account um yep that's it all right bye bye I'm not going
Oh, 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 oh,